Welcome to Dire Trip, where we deep dive into all sorts of spooky, horrific, or just plain weird crimes, lawsuits, and strange happenings all over the world. Without further ado, let's get into today's story. A woman kept in contact with her mother's killer while he was in prison, gradually warming up to him with the desire to forgive him. Upon his release, she took it upon herself to give him a job, only to find out that he hadn't changed at all. I think it's fair to say that most people couldn't stomach seeing the person who killed their mother being released from prison, let alone talking to them. And definitely not being friends with them and working together with them. That's precisely why this case is so bizarre. This story revolves around a family called the McKays. Going way back, they're the descendants of a colonel in the Civil War, Robert Snowden. When the war was over, Snowden went back home to his hometown of Memphis, Tennessee. There, he became a successful businessman and, more importantly to the story, a landowner. He married a woman named Anne Brinkley and had five kids, including Robert Brinkley Snowden, who kept up the tradition of being a land developer. Then he had a son named Robert Snowden II, who bought a thousand acres of land upon returning home from World War I. He and his wife Grace built a pretty fancy house that looked over a lake. In 1949, this house was transformed into a massive 6,000-square-foot, three-story behemoth of a home with a grand entrance staircase, one of those big fancy chandeliers, and marble floors all over the place. There, the couple had four kids, one of which was a daughter named Sally. Sally eventually moved out of the home along with the other kids, but after a few failed marriages and her kids having already become adults, she decided to return to the family home. Her father died, so she ended up taking care of the home and the family business, which included managing about 30 lakefront cabins. In the area lived Sally's nephew, Joseph Lee Baker. He lived on the lake with his wife and three kids. He was an English teacher at the local Hughes High School, but his true passion was being a blues musician and singer. He was actually well known in the Memphis area for his music ever since he had a big show at the June 1969 Memphis Country Blues Festival. All was pretty peaceful with the family, until 1996. Sally McKay was now 75 years old. Her nephew, Joseph, was 52. One night, while he was at Sally's home, someone broke into the house. This was a burglar who had evidently thought that nobody was home. This burglar, upon seeing the two, shot them out of sheer fear. To cover his tracks, he set fire to the home and stole Sally's car, a Toyota Camry, and sped off. A few alert neighbors noticed the flames engulfing the home almost immediately and called 911. Shortly after, the burglar crashed Sally's car about a mile away from the home, hitting a tree head-on. This resulted in the car completely flipping over into a ditch and him busting his head on the windshield. Still, he was able to scramble out of the car and flee on foot. Once the firefighters were able to put out the house fire, they came across the bodies of Sally and Joseph down in the rubble. They were taken in for autopsies, which showed that they were shot shortly before the fire had happened, at some time between 10.30 and 11 a.m. The police officers on the scene felt that the crime was likely a burglary gone wrong. Shortly after, some neighbors came across Sally's wrecked car in the ditch. After all of this went down, the police immediately set out to find a local criminal with a background that kind of fit the M.O. of the crime. Among all that they questioned, one man piqued their interest in particular, a man named Edric Smith. He was 20 years old with a checkered past, including robbery, and lived fairly nearby. Edric said, I'm there at the house and I'm with my daughter and I see four or five cars pull up on the side. They got my thumbprint, they got my palm print, and then they took a piece of hair. They gave me a polygraph test. 
Edric knew what this was likely about. He had heard the rumors and feared that the cops were going to pin the murder of that woman on him. Speaking of their methods, he added, They were aggressive. They said, we think it's you. Somebody's going to go down for this. Turns out that somebody was not going to be Edric. The cops were on the right track, but they were just a little bit off. The true burglar turned out to be Edric's own younger brother, Travis Sante Lewis, a 16-year-old who knew both of the victims. Travis had a criminal history of his own, including a conviction for assault. Travis's grandparents rented their home from the McKays, and his mother, Gladys, even worked as a housekeeper at the Snowden house. Travis also attended Hughes High School, where none other than Joseph Baker was his English teacher. Travis was swiftly arrested and charged with the double murder, held without bond. He asserted that someone else had assisted him with the robbery and that that person had actually been the shooter. The police never found any reason to believe that this was true, though. Travis did throw one person under the bus, but the police investigated that man and found that he had a rock-solid alibi at the time of the murders. Before too long, Travis was appearing in court, all set to be tried as an adult for his crimes. When appearing for his first hearings, the prosecutors told the judge that the police had ample evidence tying Travis to the scene. Even in interviews, he admitted himself that he was at the scene, albeit pinning the actual murder on someone else. April 7th, 1998. The day his trial was about to begin in Marion, Arkansas. Travis decided to plead guilty to the two murders. To avoid a death sentence, Travis accepted a plea deal offered up by the prosecutors. This would result in him receiving a 28 and a half year sentence with parole eligibility after serving 70% of his sentence. The McKays were actually fine with this. They didn't want him to face a death sentence. The deputy prosecutor said, quote, The families felt it would be traumatic to go through a trial, feeling that this was the easiest outcome possible after what they had gone through. Sally's daughter, Martha, was particularly devastated. This case ended up gaining cult fame mainly due to the popularity of Joseph Baker in the Memphis Blues scene. He had been a member of multiple prolific bands in the area throughout the years, including Moloch and Mudboy and the Neutrons. He had even performed on albums by Big Star, Alex Chilton, and Jim Dickinson. People who knew of him were shocked at his passing and spread the news. One of Sally's sisters, Edith, became the one to take over the family business after she died. She continued to run the place until 2006 when she herself passed away. This was when Sally's daughter, Martha, decided to take up the helm. Martha bought the Snowden house from the family business and decided to renovate it for herself. The Snowden house was only a few houses down from the home in which Sally and Joseph were murdered two decades prior. Martha McKay became known as the Lady of the Lake, enjoying her role as the hostess of the Snowden house. Martha was the adventurous type. Her friends described her as big-hearted and gregarious. She had reopened the place upon renovations and remodeled it as an elegant bed and breakfast, one that quickly became very popular. Horseshoe Lake became more and more known for its upscale vacation homes. It gained a reputation as being a popular meeting spot for artists, businessmen, and socialites from the Memphis area. The Snowden House became the most well-known of all the homes, being called Memphis's premier wedding venue before too long. In 2015, Martha gave an interview to Memphis Magazine. In that interview, she said that growing up on Horseshoe Lake was wonderful. I felt like I was royalty with the big house and servants. Everything was fresh from the garden, fresh eggs and all, and we even had a peach orchard. We got to swim every day. It was just ideal. Martha ended up taking an interest in Buddhism and became a Buddhist herself. She began trying to rid herself of any negative emotions, including hatred. People took note of her kind attitude, with her sister saying, there was something about her that people really loved. She left an impression on people. She had that gift. 
Despite knowing how forgiving Martha could be, something would happen that would still shock her family regardless. Martha decided not only to forgive, but to befriend none other than Travis Lewis, the man who had killed her own mother 20 years prior and left her traumatized. There could be no bigger test for her on her spiritual journey, and she decided to overcome it. She began writing to Travis in prison regularly. The local sheriff said, I think it was her mission to find out what happened to her mother, and to find out if someone else was involved. Martha even went to visit Travis in jail, something that virtually everyone around her warned her against doing, including both her family and the police. After meeting regularly and exchanging letters, Martha began to believe on some level that Travis hadn't really been the trigger man in the killings and that someone had assisted him. Or perhaps that's just what she wanted to believe. Her family was not happy with this budding friendship, to say the least, saying, We had said, just stay away from him. It's a bad juju type of thing, but she wouldn't do it. Once Travis had served 70% of his sentence and it came time for his parole hearings, Martha became a vocal supporter of his early release. Not one single other person in the family was supportive of his release aside from her. Martha had said that she felt bad for Travis because he was so young when the murders took place, adding that she believed on some level that someone else was responsible, at least partially. In 2018, after serving over 20 years in prison and going from a 16-year-old boy to a 38-year-old man, Travis Lewis was released from prison. Upon his release, he was met with none other than Martha Kay, the woman whose mother he had killed. Martha offered to help him get back on his feet, saying that she could give him a job working alongside his mother, Gladys, at the Snowden house, who was actually still working as a housekeeper there. Not only that, but she even offered to house him, saying that she would give him a permanent room at the bed and breakfast if he took up a job as a groundskeeper. He happily agreed. This would prove to be a fatal decision. Martha was now living and working with the man who had killed her mother just a few doors down from where it had happened. She and others felt that this was the absolute ultimate form of forgiveness. Most, though, felt that it was stupid to say the least and completely reckless at the worst. For a while, the whole arrangement actually went pretty well. This was until Travis's demeanor gradually began to change. His own mother, Gladys, came to Martha and told her to be careful of her son, saying, he's returning to his old ways. Travis had gone back to stealing. Martha had just sold one of the extravagant chandeliers in the home for $14,000 cash. She put the money into an envelope and hid it away in the home. Then the money vanished. Martha, in her diary, expressed that deep down she knew Travis was the thief. It just couldn't really have been anyone else. He was the only person there at the time, and Gladys's warning only solidified her belief. She soon fired Travis and banned him from the Snowden house, finally accepting that even if she forgave him, she couldn't afford to have him around. This brings us up to the morning of March 25th, 2020. Martha pressed a silent alarm in her home that pinged the police. Two deputies rushed out to the home to find the back door wide open. Once they went inside to investigate, they noticed someone jumping from the second-story window and rushing over to a vehicle. This person then got the car stuck in some mud, unable to proceed. He then jumped from the car and ran off, hopping into a nearby lake. While the police saw him go under, they never saw him come back up. Martha McKay was found both stabbed and bludgeoned to death at the top of the stairs, lying next to a bag of her belongings and a utility knife. On a nearby chair was a cloth bag full of several valuables, ready to be stolen. Police called a rescue team from the sheriff's department and Arkansas Game and Fish, who then used sonar equipment to try and locate their suspect in the lake, who had no doubt drowned by now. They pulled the body out of the lake, finding none other than the recently released murderer, Travis Lewis. 
An autopsy showed that Travis had a smorgasbord of drugs in his body at the time of his death, including marijuana, cocaine, and even meth. This created some doubt as to whether he actually intended to drown or if he was just completely out of his mind. Either way, he was gone. Police said, It was determined that he intended to steal these items. However, it was not determined whether his intentions were to burglarize McKay's home and she was killed in the process, or if his intention was to murder McKay and then opted to steal the items. Neighbors were left in shock, with some spreading the rumor that Martha had been stabbed and others spreading the rumor that she had been beaten to death. Once the news came out, they were shocked to find that both were true. 24 years after killing Sally, Travis Lewis had returned to the same land and killed her daughter as well. The family was left reeling. Not only had they warned Martha time and time again against befriending this man, let alone living with him, but he had done the unthinkable and killed her as well. The old wounds were once again opened, with the family saying, We are all just in disbelief. Martha's cousin and Joseph Baker's grandson told the media, It's kind of like a bad dream or deja vu, like reality, back to this again. I'm just beyond sad that it turned out this way for her. While some would go on to commend Martha on her quest for forgiveness, most people would express disbelief that she would invite her mother's killer back into her home. The worst decision of her life would prove to end this 20-plus year saga the exact same way that it started, with the member of the same family being killed in the same place by the same man. Once again, this has been your host, Kyle. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast episode. Feel free to look through my huge library of other stories if you found this one interesting, and be sure to be there for the next stories that come out each and every week. Have a good night.